All right, our passage this morning is from uh, Luke chapter 3. As we continue our, our working our way through Luke, we're looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, the beginning of his ministry. If we remember back, John the Baptist's birth was foretold by an angel, and he was born in a miraculous way to Elizabeth's mother in old age. And his passionate prophetic ministry awakened the nation of Israel to the coming of the Messiah. He was the one who went before Jesus and, as our passage will say today, made the way straight and and made a way to uh, awaken the people that their hearts might be ready for Jesus Christ when he came. So we're going to read this morning from Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. So if you would, please, uh, in our tradition to stand, to honor the Lord as we read his word. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judah, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Eturia, and Trachonitis and Licinius, uh, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness." And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers also asked him, and we, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money for anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So this passage begins with some history. Luke is very careful to record the story of Jesus Christ, and especially its time period. And he tells us what is going on and what time period in which John begins his ministry. Tiberius uh, is the Caesar of the time. And if you remember, Rome has taken over Israel, and so they are an occupied nation. And so the governor of Judea, are you all hearing me okay? We good? All right. So um, uh, the governor of Judea is Pontius Pilate, a character that we're familiar with because of the trial of Jesus. And the Tetrarch of Galilee is Herod. So we've got a succession of lesser and lesser leaders. But when you look at this list, what you have is a cast of wicked characters. When we think of Pontius Pilate, who is he? He was a guy that we see later in the trial of Jesus that we know was a governor and supposedly a judge, but he was willing to crucify, to execute someone who he knew was innocent. 
What kind of a judge is that who's willing to execute an in, a known innocent person and release a criminal just for political ends? And that's who Pontius Pilate was. Herod, we just read about last week, willing to go and murder many children in order to preserve his kingdom and hold his place of power. These were wicked men, and John was beginning his ministry in wicked times. Ananias and Caiaphas were the high priests during that time. What do we know about them? We know that they opposed the ministry of Jesus continuously because it threatened them politically. And they, even knowing that he also was innocent, were willing to bring him up on false charges, pay people to lie about him in order that he might be crucified. So in this time period, we have a structure of wicked leaders. And it is into this evil time that Jesus came as Savior. I would argue there were much worse times than ours. Sometimes people say that our day is, is a terrible day or a day that is worse than other days. I disagree with that. This was a time that was much more corrupt, more violent, more poverty, more uncertainty. And it was into this time when the Lord God had not spoken clearly to his people for over 400 years that John the Baptist broke through and the ministry of Jesus began. And part of the lesson for us here is that we never give up hope as to when the Lord is going to work because the Lord works in unusual times and in the time that he would choose to work and according to his will, he opens and closes doors. We do not know when the Lord will act. And so we pray for his action in our day, but we do not know what he is about. But the word of God to John, let's begin to look at our passage in verse 2. It says in verse 2, that during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John. A very important notion. What is going on here is that John would have no power in ministry if it were not for the work of God in his life and if it were not for the word of God coming to him. This is a call of ministry on John's life. Yes, he was born in a miraculous way, but God comes to him in a special way to call him to ministry. God is empowering him and even compelling him to go forth with a message and to preach it to the people so that they might know who Jesus the Savior is. He gave a passionate call for repentance, as we're going to see here in a moment. He called out people for their sins and told them that they were wicked. He calls them vipers and a, and a, a wicked generation because of their hypocrisy and their ungodliness. But who is John to say such things? And they would be right to come back at him and say, who are you to tell me that I am a sinner? Who are you to tell me that I am wrong? You're, you're a sinner too. Well, the reason why John is empowered to say these things is because God has sent him as a messenger, as a prophet, as one to speak the word of the Lord to the people. And so he is empowered and strengthened because of the will of the Lord to tell them what God would have them to know. And I would tell you also that, that that's why I'm here. I'm actually super glad that Drew's here today. Drew is, uh, is one of my fathers in the faith. And a big reason why I am here is because years ago he called me. And we, I talked to him about a, a desire to be here. Come on in, folks. We're so glad to have you. Just come on down front. Don't worry about a thing. Um, I would not be here if it were not for him. He said, you need to go and confirm your call, your calling. And I was like, what is that? What does that mean to be called by the Lord? I mean, there's no book. I'm like, give me a book that I can read about this so I can quantify this. And, and he said, there isn't a book. Go figure it out. And so I did. And it took about a year. And a year later, what happened in my heart was a, a tremendous sense of being compelled to do what I'm doing right here. We met again. I said, Drew, I, I, can't, I have to do this. 
I have to get back into ministry. I don't know where the Lord's going to open, what door's going to open, or what's going to happen, but I have to go and preach the gospel. And then here we are, uh, not too much longer later. The Lord opens the door when people are called. And I tell you that, that those who lead in our children's ministry are called to lead in children. Mark and Kim are called to lead our youth. Will is called to lead in worship up here. You also have a calling on your life as a Christian to serve. God will call you to do something that you know is part of his will for you. My prayer for our church is that our callings will go much beyond the walls of this place. You know that it's my prayer that we soon plant a church at some, whenever the Lord wills according to his calling, but that we plant a church in Stafford. We have many people already here that are in Stafford, and it's my prayer that God will allow us to plant another church in that place, and that one of you from our midst will stand up feeling called to the Lord to preach and teach in that place and lead that church. You know that it's my calling that we send out missionaries from this place, that we go to the ends of the world, that you not just do the normal things that you do every day, but that you feel called to serve the Lord and understand that your life is lived for him. Do you hear and obey the call of God upon your life? John did. And if you have never answered a call of the Lord to do something that is way out of your comfort zone, then you don't yet understand that answering the call of God is always sacrificial. And it always has a price. It, call, it requires us to die to ourselves. And that is an intentional part of what God does when he calls us. He always calls us to do something that requires us to lay down something else. And usually it's something that we love dearly or something that we treasure. And when we lay that down, we are showing our great devotion to the Lord that I am willing to lay down everything of my life in order to serve you. The Lord God praises and honors those that are willing to separate themselves from family, those ties that are so dear and bind us so close in order to go to faraway places to serve the Lord. And he says that there will even be an eternal reward for them. For John to take up the call of ministry, to hear the word of the Lord and go and do, it cost him his life because he preached a bold message of repentance. And when he pe preached a message of repentance to the wicked king Herod, Herod jailed him and eventually cut off his head in prison and killed him. And he died a martyr in order to do what God had called him to do. And John is certainly not the only one uh, in that boat as far as Christian history goes. But let's look at the message that the Lord God gave to John. It was a message of repentance and forgiveness. Repentance and forgiveness. Look at uh, verse 3, if you would, with me. It says, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. A baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Let me define for us repentance, because it's an important word. It's a Bible word. And oftentimes we try to get away from Bible words because they're unusual for us. They're words that we don't have really a context for in other things. And so we perhaps substitute other words. I understand that. But there are certain words that are biblical for a reason. And we need to learn their definitions and we need to understand them so that we can understand what the scriptures are saying. Repentance means to turn away from something, and especially something that is evil. You don't repent from something that is good. You repent from something that is evil. And it is to turn away from something that is evil in order to seek something that is righteous or recognizing an ungodly pattern or habit in your life and turning away from it so that you might start a godly habit or something new and different. 
And these are what are defined by God. So when we are turning away from something evil, we're turning away from something evil as defined by God so that we might take up something that is good and righteous as defined by God. A walk with the Lord or serving the Lord Jesus is never a neutral thing. You don't turn away from evil so that you just stand or stop and just sit in a place because we will always tend towards what direction? Back towards evil things because our hearts are corrupt and desperately wicked. And so when we turn away from evil, we must then pursue actively what is good and righteous so that we might be nearer to the Lord. And so John is calling for repentance from the people. And as we're going to see with John's message, he emphasizes repeatedly that actions are the essence of repentance. Repentance is not about language. Repentance is about action. It's about the, a change of heart that results in a real, verifiable change of action. And so John uses a very interesting phrase here, and skip down a little bit to verse 8. He talks about bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Verse 8, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So let's talk a little bit about the, the fruit language of the Bible. The Bible talks a lot about fruit. Why does it talk about fruit? Because it's an analogy that helps us understand the connection between heart and action. So we like to go every fall to Jenkins Orchard down the road here near Shenandoah. It's a, it's a fun place, and you go there, and there's trees all over the place. And I, don't, I am no horticulturalist. I don't know anything. It's got leaves on it, and it's got bark. It's a tree. But I don't know what is going to grow off that tree. Maria was like, oh, it's a pear tree. It's this, kind of, it's this type of apple tree. I, I don't know how she learned all this stuff, but she's great at identifying leaves. But I can't do that. So I've got to look at what? The fruit. And I can see an apple hanging on a tree and know that is an apple tree. And I can look at a pear hanging on a tree and say that is a pear tree. How do I know? Do I guess? Well, maybe it's got an apple on it, but maybe it's a pear tree. Nobody's ever said that before because it doesn't make any sense because you can't grow a pear on an apple tree and you can't grow an orange on an apple tree because trees bear the fruit that is in keeping with the type of tree that it is. And that is the point. The point is that the fruit or what comes out of our life will be in keeping with the nature of our heart. And so if your heart is corrupt and wicked and hates God and lives in rebellion against God, your life will bear certain fruit. If you love God and you are seeking to serve God with your life and you are humble before the Lord, your life will bear other types of fruit. And what happens is when people look at you and they say, there's no way that guy could be a Christian. Why would they say that? Because the fruit of your life is something that is corrupt. And you may say, I'm a follower of Christ, but your life does not look like a follower of Christ because of your pride and your lust and your materialism and whatever it may be. But those, no matter how unable they may be to articulate their Christian faith, when their faith is, when their life is shown by love and kindness and forgiveness and service, you look at that person and when they say, I'm a follower of Christ, you're like, I knew it. I knew that person was a follower of Christ. Why? Because of the way that their actions are the fruit of their life is consistent with their confession. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 speaks much about this. If you'd like to, you can turn there. We're going to spend just a moment there. Uh, Galatians chapter 5 is a letter of Paul to the church at Galatia, and it speaks about, um, it speaks about fruits and what is going on there. Let me turn here. Um, 
in chapter 5, it talks about fruits of two different things, fruits of the flesh and fruits of the spirit. And so it lists out for us what we should expect in verses 19 and 20, and then verses 22 and 23, what we should expect from a Christian or a non-Christian person. A person not following the Lord or a person that has never repented of their sins will be a person who bears the fruit of the flesh or what is produced by a sinful and godless life. So 5.19 says this, Now the words of the works, excuse me, of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So it talks about the fruit of the flesh, and it's, it's fascinating that the very first thing that is listed there is the, the first thing that's normally listed in these, in these lists of, of, uh, of sins is something sexual because it has to do with the desire and the passion of your heart. And as I've told you over and over, the Lord God wants the affections of your heart. He wants you to love him with your heart, and that is what he is driving at. And if, you're, if you love something else and your passions are directed elsewhere, they will not be able to be paired up with a love for the Lord because they're exclusive of each other. When we go down this list, we see all kinds of things that divide, rivalries, dissension, uh, fits of anger. We know how outbursts of anger cause other people to divide from us. Drunkenness. When we get into being drunk, we no longer have control over ourselves. And the sinful nature that we have breaks forth and causes us to do all kinds of things that we normally would never do. That's why we must steer clear of that as Christians. But if we go on a little bit further, the fruit of the spirit of someone who does love the Lord is different. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so the person that has been changed, the person who has repented from their sins and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit begins to change us. And the Holy Spirit begins to bear his fruit in our life. If you will, the, the tree is changed. We're a different tree because of what God does in our life. And whereas before we might have broken out in anger, instead we react in patience. Where we may have been immoral before, we now want to have self-control. Where we would have gossiped and undercut and hated people with our language, we instead treat them with kindness and gentleness because of the change that the Lord Jesus has brought upon us. Fruits in keeping with repentance means that our lives must increasingly demonstrate a turning away from evil for the purpose of pursuing Jesus. Let me say that one more time because John calls for fruits in keeping with repentance. This means that our lives must increasingly demonstrate a turning away from evil in order to pursue Jesus. This is a lifelong process which we never in this life reach a completion or a, a perfection in this. But we strive after it. 
And we strive in such a way that our words are not hypocritical. It is not just words, but actions where we are truly striving to seek after the Lord and we are praying for his spirit to change us. And when we fail in these things, we don't just try harder in and of ourselves. We pray and we ask God, give me more of your Holy Spirit that I might bear, that your spirit might be more at work in my life, that I might be different and I might look more like Christ. Because when John was speaking to his audience, he was looking at a group of Jews and rebuking them for their hypocrisy. For they had all kinds of extra laws they had created, all kinds of special robes and things that they wore and titles that they learned. But John denounced them as walking in evil and hypocrisy because their hearts did not love the Lord. They were not true in their confession. And I ask the same of you, is your heart true in your love for the Lord? When you look at your life objectively, do you see the fruit of God's Spirit present and growing in your life? Or if you look at your life objectively or ask your spouse to to evaluate your life, what would they say about your life? Does it show repentance? Repentance must focus on besetting sins. What does this mean? It means that it's not enough for us to repent of things that don't appeal to us or to turn away from things that are no big deal to us. But it means that we must look at what it is that is a tremendous struggle and stumbling block for us, and that is what you have to turn away from. It is not enough to repent of gossip and immorality when really pride and anxiety is your problem. When you, are, when you really need to humble yourself or understand that I have not yet come to the place where I can fully give my anxieties to the Lord and trust Him, and so I have a lack of faith in my life, And so we must turn away from what it is that truly is the problem. If we are repenting of anger and drunkenness, but immorality is our problem, we must look to that and turn away from that. We must turn away from the sin that you love. It goes back to the heart. You may turn away from everything in your life, but hold on to one central thing that you know is wicked, but you love it, and you are not going to give it up. And that one thing can keep you away from true faith in the Lord because you are unwilling to fully repent of your sins. Pastor Ryle writes this. I just had to quote it because it's so good. Let us know our own besetting sins. Against them let us direct our principal efforts. With these let us wage unceasing war. Let the rich break off from the rich man's sins and the poor from the sins of the poor. Let the youth give up the sins of youth and the elderly the sins of age. This is the first step toward proving that we are in earnest. Are we for real? Are we sincere? Then let us begin by looking at home and looking within. How long has it been since you have taken stock of your life and looked seriously at the repentance of your life? Is your repentance true? Do you turn away from your sins for a love of Jesus? Well, many in John's audience did listen to him, and they believed this message, and they asked the right question. Their question in verse 10 was, what shall we do? In verse 10, the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? So what's the end of this message? What what, what should we do here? And so John tells them, If your repentance is true and you have put your faith in Christ, the fruit of your life will change and the fruit of your repentance will be a different life. He begins by talking about sharing. This is not a complete list. It is just a list. And so he says some things to them. If you have two tunics, share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. 
So do not be bound by the material things of this world. Have faith that the Lord will supply more. So be generous with what you have and give to others. And then it's interesting. He has two specific um, professions, if you will, come and ask him what to do. And tax collectors, a group of tax collectors, come and ask him, what should we do? Teacher, what shall we do? Verse 13, he said to them, collect no more than what you are authorized to. What does that mean? It means don't cheat people in your business. we got some businessmen in this audience. Don't cheat people in your business. Collect only what you're allowed to do, what is right to do. Be a righteous businessman. Some people feel like in business, if I don't cheat and lie and steal, I'll never make it. I'll somehow go out of business. That's a lack of faith. Trust the Lord. Do what you're called to do. Do what is right and just. But it's interesting that Jesus does not tell them to quit their profession. Did you notice that? That's a, that's a, that's a questionable profession. But he just says, be just in what you do. The same thing for the soldiers. Soldiers come and ask him, and what shall we do? In verse 14. And he says to them, do not extort money, nor from anyone by threats or by false accusations. Be content with your wages. So he does not tell them to quit being a soldier. He tells them, don't use the the strength that you have in order to extort people or use violence in order to cause people to give you more and, and abuse your office. So be peaceful and to be content. What an interesting word. I offer to you a book in our library called The Power of Christian Contentment, an amazing book. Uh, Contentment is something very important because it means I'm satisfied with the place that God has given me, and I'm going to trust him for the future. And so contentment, John says, be content with what you have. Repentance demonstrates an authentic sorrow over sin and a desire to live in a new way, but repentance does not save you. What do I mean by that? Repentance shows an authentic turning away from sin, but it is believing and trusting in the work of Christ on the cross that saves us. Repentance does not save us from the wrath of God, but it demonstrates our sincere belief. It is the atoning work of Christ on the cross that pays for our sins. And so when we turn away from our sins, it's not our work that is saving us, but we are turning away from the world and all of its corruption, and we're looking to Christ upon the cross, and we're trusting in what he has done for us that we might be forgiven of our sins. But without true repentance, there cannot be true belief. They go hand in hand. And so John speaks to them about this in verse 8. There is this interesting section about Abraham and Abraham being their father. And as he talks to them about repentance and appeals for them to believe, they say, Abraham is our father. What does this mean? It means that they're appealing to some sense of heritage or uh, something beyond themselves for their salvation and putting it off on themselves. And so where this comes to us is that no connection with a godly grandfather or no association with this church or no association with a civic organization or anything like this will ever bring you salvation with the Lord. It is a personal decision that we must take up. We must personally turn away from our sins and put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ or there will be no salvation. They were trusting the fact that they were Jews and in this heritage of God's chosen people to be saved. And John said, no, you must must personally personally choose the Lord Jesus. Salvation is only by individual repentance and faith. Well, we'll close with where John's message closes because John's message drives to a sobering end. When we get to verse 9 is where he ends his message. 
And it says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. And every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And this statement is what causes them to ask, What shall we do? Because it cuts them to the quick and they understand that they are undone. For what is this talking about? It is a clear image of judgment and damnation. Those who choose to live in their sin and rebel against God will be judged and will be cast into outer darkness. I understand that this is an offensive and unsettling message to every age that it has been preached in. But it is unequivocally the message of the Bible. It's the message of John, and then Jesus took up that same message and said in Luke 13, 3, unless you repent, likewise you will perish. And later in that same chapter, he speaks about people being told to depart from his presence because he never knew them, that they were workers of iniquity and would be cast out into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the idea of judgment. It is the original lie that rebellion against God would have no significant consequences in our lives. If we go back to the third chapter of Genesis, it was the tempter originally with Adam and Eve. What did he say to them? You shall surely not die if you disobey the Lord and rebel against him. Oh, no, if you rebel against God, good things are going to happen. And both of them rebelled against the Lord, and sin and death entered into the world. And they did not die immediately, but they did die eventually, and death has been with us ever since. And death will not be rid until the Lord removes it. But the biblical salvation message is so sweet and important and imperative and worth a calling of your life because of the possibility of death and hell. Jesus being a Savior saves us from that end. That's what makes his salvation so sweet and so important and so vital. And that is why John is proclaiming it, and that's why I am proclaiming it to you today. God is holy in his perfection, and he will not overlook sin, but he will forgive sin through his son, Jesus. He will forgive your sins by grace and by grace alone. So let me clarify a false notion that I believe is pervasive in our day, and perhaps every day. The idea that there will be good people who really wanted to believe in the Lord that will be cast into hell or be judged for their sins when they really did not want to be. It is not so. Because today is the same as the day of the Lord Jesus. That when he preached, and when John preached, and when the apostles preached, and when every good gospel preacher has ever preached down through the ages, three things have happened to the people in their audience. There has been one part of the group of the audience that believed and said, what should I do? What should I do now? And that is some of you. I had to, you know who you are. There are some of you in this audience that over the years I have met with you, had breakfast with you, prayed for you, pleaded for you to read the scriptures, and you have believed, and you've come to this place, and you have come to a place of salvation, and it, it causes me to rejoice to see the work of the gospel in the hearts of people but I long to see more of that. And there's always, always people. There is there's someone here today that this message is moving you, and I will call you to come down at the end of this message and give your heart to the Lord in faith. Always there are those who believe. But secondly, there are those who hate and reject the message. There are those that walk away. There are those that walked away from the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead and said, we've got to get rid of Jesus. That is a hardened heart a heart that hates God and hates all the things of God, and they turn away from the Lord. And those people reject the message that I am telling to you. And then there is the third group, which is the agnostic group, 
or the group that says, let me delay, let me wait longer to see more about what is going on here. I understand that you may have questions, but you need to drive to get those questions answered. But as the clock is ticking and time is short, we do not know what day will be the day of our death. And in the end, all who are judged actively choose to reject the salvation of God and will face the consequences of their choice, even though a merciful Savior has extended grace to them and pardon to them, they reject that pardon and choose instead to walk in their sins. So I will close with a story that was, it was very interesting to me that I heard this past summer. I had a friend of mine who said, hey, we gotta go, we got to go have lunch. i got to tell you something. I hadn't really known this person much, but I knew that he moved to the other side of the country for uh, an, a brother-in-law that was sick. And I kind of lost track of the story there. But we sat down, he said, yes, my wife and I moved across the country, a brother-in-law that was sick with cancer. And we got out there, we realized that he was in total denial of his situation. He would not allow the doctors to tell him what he actually had or what was actually going on with him. And he just was, had this positive, and I, I use quotation marks because it was, a, it was an unrealistic positive expectation that he was just going to beat this. Denied certain amounts of treatment, denied listening to the gospel or hearing anything about his soul. And the short of it was that two months later, he was dead. And it shocked everyone, shocked his family, and he went on into eternity. But being in denial about the true condition of your life is not helpful. And this person who was sitting down with me at lunch, he was not a Christian prior to this. But the sudden death of his brother-in-law and his denial of all that was going on sobered him. And ultimately, he and his wife came to salvation, and he was calling me to sit down at lunch to say, Brother, I have, I have become a Christian. And by the way, I had spent three weeks with this guy, and everybody was saying, What has happened to this person? Because they were, he was so different than when we knew him last time. He was truly had been saved. But his salvation came by being sobered by death and the reality of the suddenness of death and the unprepared nature of his soul. Death will come to us all. You do not get to choose the day of its coming. It is in the Lord's sovereign hands. But you do have a choice as to what you will do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, as to whether or not you will turn away from your sins and put your faith in him, or whether you will reject his message and go about your own way and love the world. I am extending the good news of forgiveness to you today, as John did to his audience many thousands of years ago. I'm urging you to turn away from your sins and turn toward what is good and right. I'm urging you to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ that you might be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning and for this powerful passage. There's a lot of heavy truths here, but this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where life change occurs. And so I pray for this audience today. I pray for those that know Christ as their Savior, that their hearts will be stirred and zeal to go and share the good news of Jesus Christ with others around them. I pray for those that are agnostic this morning, those that aren't sure about their belief. I pray that today would be a day of salvation for them. I pray that they would come and put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ today. And I pray for those whose hearts are hard. I pray for those that are angry at the messages I have spoken this morning, those that shake their fist at God, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work that only you can do to change their heart, to break their heart of stone, and give them a heart that loves you instead. Lord, we commend ourselves to you, O merciful Savior. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.